Uh, Romans 10, today, uh, looking at verses 1 to 13, where the Apostle Paul was continuing, I think, um, really, you can, a continuation from chapters 1 all the way until chapters 11, and then in chapter 12, you'll see the Apostle switch up and go a different direction. But uh, before we begin, let me go ahead and uh, read. Let me read the first four verses. I want to go back and read verses 30 to 33 also of uh, Romans chapter 9 because I think that's pertinent when we're looking at the first four verses. Actually, really the first 13 verses of uh, chapter 10. So let me start in verse 30 of uh, chapter 9 of Romans. What shall we say then that Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Chapter 10, verse 1 Brethren, my heart desires, or excuse me, my heart's desire in prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So as I said, I think the apostle was continuing his theme from chapter 9 into chapter 10 and into chapter 11, uh, as my uncle will get into that probably in the next couple months. But we see this, I, I think, continued idea, Jew and Gentile. It was uh, established far back in Romans, but we saw in the last chapter of chapter 9, Esau and Jacob Jacob was the promised seed. He was the younger. Uh, Esau was to serve Jacob. Esau kind of represents the Gentile world and God establishing this blessed line through Jacob. But we also see Paul establishing towards the end of chapter 9 the, really the saddest state of the Jewish community. So that's where we start here in verse 1. He says, brethren, my heart desire... My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. And if you remember in the beginning of chapter 9, he used very similar language. He said in verse 2, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. Why? For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh who are Israelites. So I think the Apostle has a uh, feeling and a strong desire and an aching desire in his heart for his countrymen, for his fellow Jews who have not bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. We see this word brethren here at the very beginning of verse 1. I think it's already an appeal to the Jewish believers that he's writing to in Rome. Now there was also Gentiles at this church in Rome, but maybe he's saying to the other Jewish believers I'm sure your heart is also aching for the majority of our brethren who have not believed. It's a small number, this brethren, a small number compared to the vast majority of Jews who do not believe at this time. 
But put yourself in the shoes of the Apostle Paul here. Is I think every single one of us in here have family member and relatives and even close friends who we would consider as family that are not believers. And think upon that, how that weighs upon your heart. Who knows if, if the, uh, the Apostle Paul, we don't know too much about his background. I think he had a sister because he had a nephew. Um, if she potentially was a believer, but I'm sure the Apostle had tons of cousins who knows if his parents or his uncle and aunts and other relatives who were Jews in the flesh who may have rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ and also his countrymen as a whole. So this had to weigh down on Paul. And as you see through his ministry, yes, he was you know, beaten plenty of times by Gentiles, but he was also persecuted quite often by the Jews. And that had to really weigh down upon him. So I would think, put yourself in the shoes of the apostle. Maybe you don't have to. We all believe in, are unbelieving brothers and sisters and parents and cousins. And think how that weighs upon you. And I think that's what the apostle is conveying here. Is that he desires and prays that they may come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we'll see the perversity of their thought that these Jews, the majority of Jews, think that they're saved. And he's going to go through that here. But Romans 9.27 this is a striking verse here. He says, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is a remnant that will be saved. If you really take a step back and think about the travesty of that verse, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant will be saved. And we'll talk about that more as we get down here through verses 3, 4, 5, and 6. Verse 2 Paul says, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So they're not completely atheistic. They're not like the uh, Athenians, as the apostle was talking to in Acts 17, who had, you know, a, a statue to the unknown God, to every pantheistic deity you could ever think of. No, these Jews were religious. They were zealous for God and for the law. You see, the apostle even uses this word here, a zeal for God, this fervor, this passion for the things of the Lord. But it's not a passion, as it were, of uh, love, but of uh, really mistaken identity. This desire to please God from the standpoint of uh, these Jews, and you could probably also throw in Gentiles who were Jewish converts in here, but had not converted to Christianity, really had caused them uh, to become calloused and to commit dreadful acts in the name of protecting God. We have here uh, Matthew Pohl, in his commentary said, this is of the Jews, that they have a fervent desire to maintain the law of God. That would be a warm, yet it is a blind zeal. They know not the will of God, or that righteousness which he will accept. They knew not that Christ in and by whom... That law is fulfilled. Man, they had a zeal for the things of God, but not for the true things of God. And we'll see that here again, as I said, in a moment. Let me just read a couple passages from the New Testament, I think, that perfectly illustrate this. Jesus, is, before his high priestly prayer, is speaking with his disciples, and he's warning them of things to come. John 16, 2, he says this to his disciples, they will make you outcast from the synagogue. And I think Jesus has particularly speaking the Jews in mind here. 
They will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you will think that he is offering a service to God. You see what the zeal of these Jewish mainline believers were thinking, that they were offering a service to God for killing the true disciples of Christ. Who could forget John 8, 59, after Jesus had openly avowed his deity to the Jewish leaders and the elders. He says, before Abraham was, I am. And what did the Jews do? It says, therefore, in John 8, 59, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. You again see this zeal from the Jewish people. And who can forget, obviously, before Paul was converted, he was Saul. And we see no clearer example of this than in Acts chapter 7, where Stephen is confronting, really, the Jewish people. And he's going through the history of the Old Testament, how the Old Testament pointed forward to Christ, and what did the Jews do? They picked up stones and they stoned Stephen, and they killed him. And who was at the stoning of Stephen? Paul. The Apostle Paul was. I think it was the robes and the garment of Stephen was laid at the feet of Saul. You see the zeal that Saul has later become Paul, and he confesses this in Philippians 3, 5 and 6. He says this about himself, concerning the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, again we see the word zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. So really it's this perversity of thought that many of these so-called um, people of the, of the Jewish faith thought that they were doing service to God. And if you look at the Old Testament, I think they actually have uh, not, not a proper understanding, but you can understand where they get the idea from. In fact, Leviticus 24, 16 says this, Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him, the alien as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name of God, he shall surely be put to death. So you see the zeal wasn't out of utter ignorance. It wasn't just out of this um, malicious desire to murder people. But they had a twisted understanding, a shaded and darkened view of the Old Testament and how it really and truly pointed to Christ. And I think that's what uh, Paul was trying to convey here, the grief and sorrow in his heart for the misguided notions and goals of the majority of Jewish brothers and sisters um, that he is known. And at the end of uh, verse 2, I think he sums it up, but it's not according to knowledge. It's not according to the true knowledge of Jesus Christ. Verses, uh, before I continue, anyone have any comments or questions? Same thing with us. Verses 3 and 4 we see, For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. The Jews again thought they knew the truth but actually completely missed the mark. 
the whole Old Testament, in most Jews and other Gentiles' opinion, was about the working of the law. In essence, it was about the law, but only to what the law, that is the Ten Commandments, to keep it simple, pointed forward to. And as Paul says here, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. What did everything in the Old Testament point to ultimately? There were plenty of promises that were fulfilled in the Old Testament. When Abraham was promised by God that his descendants would be as the sand of the sea, I think you could make the argument it was a physical and also a spiritual promise. When he said, I will give your descendants this land, that was fulfilled in the land. But ultimately, all of these promises of the Old Testament, specifically the law, point forward to the cross. The end-all, be-all was not in the law. And all of the 1,600, I think, what did you say last week, Uncle Ray? Was it 1,600 regulations that the Jews had for the Sabbath? Okay, yes. All of those, that was not the end-all, be-all. The end-all, be-all of the law in the whole entire Old Testament was pointing forward to Christ. The righteousness that he is talking about here was pointing forward to Christ. These Jews did not realize that the purpose of the law, what it was for. Paul explains in verse 32 and also in verse 33 what they thought it was for and the consequences of it. And to Becky's point, Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. They thought that you could be justified in the eyes of God by meticulously keeping the law, or the Ten Commandments. And what do we know of the natural human condition? Even from the Old Testament, if you look at Genesis 6, there was nothing good in the world. If you look at the New Testament, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You can't ever one moment fulfill the law you can't go for one day keeping all of the ten commandments you'll break them and that is the truth of it all is this law and also the prophets moses and elijah and elijah and samuel all of the prophets of the old testament and david all pointed forward to christ who is the end of the law and christ perfectly fulfilling the law giving us his righteousness yes tom Exactly. I think to that point, we also see that with the rich young ruler. When he comes to Christ and says, Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus lists all of these things. Oh, I keep all of these. And then what does Christ say to him? Sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And it said, he went away exceedingly sorrowful, for he was very wealthy. So you see, he, myself, and every single person in here, does not truly want to live. We're not capable of truly living up to the law. And that's why Christ is pivotal. It's, it's the end-all, be-all. It's of eternal importance. Let me just uh, read this from the pen of John. He says that 
and I think this is extremely uh, beneficial, the Jews who stumbled at the, at the outward average, just, he says meanness of Jesus of Nazareth, meanness being average, the Jews who stumbled at the outward averageness of Jesus of Nazareth, at his parentage, the manner of his birth, his education, the average appearance of himself and his followers, at his company and audience, his ministry, miracles, death, and the manner of it, so believe not in him. It was almost, when you think to yourself, all of these promises of the Old Testament, it was almost, if you put yourself in the shoes of these Jewish individuals, the coming of Christ was almost anticlimactic. Anticlimactic. You can see that in the disciples. They thought that he was going to come and establish this great empire to rule and reign on earth, which he eventually will, we know that. But they thought he was going to be a political revolutionary. And I think that was very difficult for a lot of these people to look back in the Old Testament and say, this is it? This Jesus of Nazareth, this is the guy that Abraham talked about, that was talked about in the garden, that David looked forward to, that the Old Testament pointed forward to. It was this Jesus Christ. But we can be thankful today that, you know, this Jesus Christ, if you understand what he did on the cross, it's far grander than anything he could have ever done politically. And I think that's really a snare to many people, Jew and Gentile. I don't, I don't mean just to point Jews out here. I think Paul is specifically talking about Jews here, but Gentiles, the non-Jews, struggle with the exact same thing. Romans 3.20, we see this. No, uh, for by the deeds of the law, no flesh is justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Again, the law was not the end-all, be-all. It was to show the sin nature of humanity and the eventual need for Christ. Uh, Psalm 119, uh, David says, Oh, how I love your law and meditate upon it day and night. David loved to do the law, but I think in there, there is, um, David is understanding his inadequate nature, that he is not able to completely fulfill the law. And again, I think that directly and indirectly points forward to Christ, this one who came and fulfilled the law. And also, as we see here, for Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. We go back to verse 32 of chapter 9. They did not seek it as it were by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. And this is just for people, I hope, but people at Bible Chapel, this is, I'm just repeating myself for the thousandth time. You can't do the works. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. Romans, Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 2, there's nothing that we can do. But yet, it was so foreign to the children of Israel in the time of Paul. If you remember uh, John 3, 10, where the famous chapter of John 3, where Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night, and he says, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus said, you must be born again. And Nicodemus says, oh, I've got to come from my mother's womb again. And Nicodemus was no dummy. He was one of the rulers in Israel. He was probably one of the most intelligent people. Scholastically, in the Old Testament, knew the Hebrew language, I'm sure, by heart. Knew everything of the Old Testament. And he asked that simpleton question. What does Jesus say? Are you not a ruler of Israel and you do not know these things? If the rulers of Israel... The Jewish leaders did not know these things. 
then I would say that the Jewish laity had no hope either. And I'm not, again, casting down these Jewish leaders. I, I think they had a, a zeal for the things of God, as Paul did. Um, I know I'm kind of jumping around here, but I think these are pertinent examples. Luke 18, the well-known parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. So again, put yourself in the shoes of the Pharisees. So when the Pharisee goes into the temple to pray, he says, Lord, I'm thankful I'm not like this man, unjust, an adulterer, covetousness, or covetous. I pray, I fast, I do all of these things. Do you actually think that was a genuine prayer? Do you actually think that the Pharisee did those things? I would think that the Pharisee actually did do those things. He thought he was being justified, being made right in the eyes of God by doing those things. His heart clearly was not in the right place because he was comparing himself to this other person. And he did not understand the end of the law, which is of Christ. But he actually thought he was being made right in the eyes of God by doing those things. So the next time you read that parable, put yourself in the shoes of the Pharisee. I don't think he was, uh, he was obviously being proud and pompous, but I can see where he was coming from. And I think that's what Paul is saying here, is that, man, these Jews have a zeal for God, but it is misplaced. It's in the law, it's in the things of the law, instead of being in Christ. And then think for a minute, if you're an Old Testament Jew or a Jew in the time of Christ, do you think you would have grasped these concepts? Do you think you would have had the eyes to see and the ears to hear to be able in the Old Testament to understand the coming of Christ, a Jew in the time of Christ, if you had the knowledge and education that you did and you saw this man coming, do you think you would have understood all of these things being fulfilled from the Old Testament times? I, I think uh, if you say yes, you're probably fooling yourself. I know if you say yes, you'd probably be uh, the least person to understand. So I think we need to have compassion here when we're reading this. Uh, and compassion, I think this is compassion for the lost world. There is a lot of ignorance. Uh, because of the natural human heart, they're still responsible. We're not, I'm not trying to say here that these individuals are not responsible for their sin. They most certainly are responsible for their sin. But there's ignorance because there's a veil over their eyes and a veil over their heart. And it's ultimately, thank the Lord, it's the grace of God. I read Romans 9.27 earlier. What does it say? Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. In verse 29, and Isaiah said before, in the Old Testament times, unless the Lord of the Sabbath had left us a seed. So pay attention to the first line. Unless the Lord. It wasn't anything that these individuals done. We would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. We would have been made like Sodom and Gomorrah unless it was of the grace of God. I'm not downplaying the, the uh, insignificance of the violence that the Jews caused against Christ and against Christians. They are held responsible for it. But we see here time and again in the word of God, it was God who left a remnant for the children of Israel. I don't want to beat a dead horse, but let me go here to Hebrews 
chapter 3 real quick. This is wonderful. The author of Hebrews, whomever it is, Paul, Paulus, whomever, says this in verse 16 of chapter 3 of Hebrews. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who did not obey? Listen to verse 19. So we see they could not enter because of unbelief. It's always been about faith and really never about the law, but what the law pointed to. Isn't that staggering to think about? A million people, three million people who came out of Egypt, and every person, most people over 20 outside of Caleb and Joshua and some of their household, most of the people fell and died in the wilderness. And I don't think this is just pointing to physical death. This is pointing to spiritual death. Because if you go on in chapter 4 of Hebrews, these did not enter the rest of God. And I think this is important for us to understand is just because we're a church, just because we've been baptized to take communion, examine your hearts. Just because you see all the miracles of God, taste the communion wafer and, and grape juice, and just because you pray and read the Bible, check your heart. Check your heart. Because many people, so-called Christians, have had perfect attendance to church and are not in everlasting life with the Lord. So, I encourage you to check your hearts and your mind as we continue to go through here. Anyone have any comments or questions before I continue on? I, I not necessarily went off track, but uh, expanded a little bit more. Of David? Yeah. He was a lawyer, wasn't he? It's like a, yeah, master, master at uh, laying out a brief of a case of a trial. You're guilty before God. Yes. Thank you. 
Exactly. Yep. Excellent. All right. Well, verses 5 to... We'll get, we'll get through these real quick. Verses 5 to 13. So, Paul, to uh, expand his case, uh, brings in Moses. It says here, For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring up Christ from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. Paul brings in to the mix the Old Testament example from the pen of Moses. On the surface underneath, there is almost no difference as to what Paul is saying as to what Moses is saying here. Leviticus 18, 4-5 says this, You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and laws, for the person who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. I think you see a beautiful example there of justification by faith alone. If you love the law of the Lord, you will live by it. You will do it. If you love something, you will do it. You will go for it. Albert Barnes says, The meaning is that this doctrine was already so familiar and so well understood that it was actually in their mouth, that is, in their language, in their common conversation. And the same was true for the gospel. The language in the Old Testament was there, that there's no excuse of these Jewish and even Gentile communities for saying we had no idea. It was completely foreign to us. No, this doctrine of living by your faith has been found in all of the Old Testament. Uh, Habakkuk 2.5, the just shall live by his faith. Again, I, I, I'm probably saying it too much, but the law was not the end-all be-all. That's kind of a good, good quote. The law was not the end-all be-all. It merely pointed to Christ. Some may have a rebuttal here, and the apostle knowing their questions ahead of time. People like to complicate things or make excuses, and we see that here in verses 6, 7, and 8. They may say, but Christ is up there, he's too far away, or Christ is down there, he's too far away. To do these things is a complicated matter. I'm not capable of doing it. I'm not capable of understanding what the Old and New Testament says. That's ridiculous. The gospel of Jesus Christ is easy. It's not found in a pilgrimage, work, or anything that you can produce, but it is near to you. It is upon your lips and upon your heart. As Moses said, as Paul says here, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. It is by faith and always been by faith for the believer in the Old and New Testament. And as we finish up here, uh, verses 9 to 13, again, keep in mind here this mouth and heart. It's easy. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Side note, this is one of the clearest and most succinct presentations of the gospel in the New Testament. I looked up. I knew it in the back of my mind, but I needed a refresher, the Romans Road. 
And in the Romans Road, this particular uh, verses, chapters 10, 9, 10, and I believe 11 are in that Romans Road uh, presenting the gospel or evangelizing to people. So this is a pertinent verse to memorize to be able to share your faith. And we see here that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, again, mouth and heart, with the heart, that is what is inside of us represents the soul, while the mouth represents what we think. So as the apostle was conveying here, it's not only just, it's not a verbal, uh, I accept Jesus Christ, but if it's with the heart, it's changing your inside. And with your mouth, it's changing the way that you think. So that if you change the way you think, and your heart is changed inside of you, that's a complete renewal. You will be saved. Put yourself again into the, sh- into the shoes of those who are hearing this message that were form- formerly Jews or Jewish converts uh, or Gentiles. They have to be thinking to themselves, there's more than this. There has, there has to be something else. And in fact, in Galatians, we'll eventually see, yeah, they thought there was more. There had to be circumcision and these other ceremonies, which was completely thrown out the window. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is simple. It's easy. Not to put it down. Not, not to throw it aside, but to lift it up. How non-complicated it is. That if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you will be saved. And then verses 11 to th- uh, 12 and 13. For the scripture says, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is phenomenal language here. That the person who trusts in Christ will not be put to shame. The language is taken from Isaiah 26 by the apostle. And we see the imagery of the cornerstone and foundation used yet again. You will not be put to shame. Uh, In Isaiah 26, the rest of that verse is what the apostle has here in Romans 9, 33. Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Now, I think every person in here, every Christian in here knows that that doesn't mean that you're not going to face shame and open humiliation in our society. Jesus Christ is the perfect example of that, but I think this looks to a heavenly hope. There's going to be no shame in heaven when we stand before Christ. You may have difficulty in this life. You may have trials. As we've seen throughout church history and even the Old Testament, people lose their lives all the time for the gospel. But it's a shame where you'll not, no longer stand accused before Jesus Christ on the final day. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. Again, I think we use this, uh, I want to pull this cornerstone imagery from the end of chapter 9. We see Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone, used in Ephesians chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2. And in this other text, it's used that the prophets and the apostles were the other wall stones. So they were the wall stones. Jesus Christ was his chief cornerstone. He was the sure foundation which the prophets and the apostles were built upon. 
But I can't also help but think here that I think that also applies to Jew and Gentile. If you remember the animosity that Jew and Gentile had, even in the Old Testament, maybe even still today. But the gospel of Jesus Christ unites the two. That does not mean that there's not going to be conflict between Christians. I think every single person in here is well aware of conflict that happens all the time between Christians. But at the end of the day, we have a unity. We have a common cornerstone, Jesus Christ, that we can ally each and every one of us with. And as we see in verse 13, for whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And kind of just to summarize, let me ask you these questions as we close. Can you rejoice in the peace of Christ? Are you working, as the Jew did, in perpetual conflict and in aggravation trying to earn your salvation? It is with this that I point you to Christ, that you believe in your heart, that you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. And I can tell you, as the Apostle Paul said through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you will be saved. So I got done a couple minutes early. If you have any comments or questions, you can see me afterwards. Uh, I won't be here next week. I think the week after that, we'll pick up verses uh, 14, I think, to the end of the chapter. Thank you very much.